bitches. Happy Hanukkah. Christmas is coming up. Merry Christmas, Kwanzaa, New Year's. Uh, I took a little break for a day or two, but I'm back. I'm back. And I wanted to save this article from Tuesday in the LA, LA Times by Kathy Butler. Oh, this article really touched me very, very deeply. It's called The Ritual of Degrading Women in Rape Trials. I don't know if any male or female of any of you have been raped before in any way, shape, or form. We can talk about any part of your body or your mind or whatever, but it's a horror, horrific thing. So I wanted to share this incredible article. Harvey Weinstein's Los Angeles rape trial, which ended Monday with the jury finding him guilty of raping one woman, was more than a one-off parade of salacious stories about a disgraced apex predator and a ritual dragging through the mud of women who said they were violated. Hello, right? It's savage mistreatment of female witnesses in, is instructed to the approximately 300,000 women in the U.S. who are raped each year and consider whether to involve the criminal justice system. They don't know whether they should involve the police or not. According to Justice Department statistics, rape is the most underreported, underinvestigated, and underprosecuted of all violent crimes and the least likely to result in a conviction. Katie Butler, you're amazing, okay? So I'm just saying, right? Of course. About 30% of survivors suffer post-traumatic stress disorder, a rate higher than that of combat veterans. This trial helps explain why many women don't report, and it shows the searing mismatch between a defendant's right to an effective defense and the needs of trauma survivor for safety and justice. Weinstein has 20 years left to serve on a sentence in New York State following his 2020 conviction for rape and assault, which he is appealing. Of course he's appealing, right? In Los Angeles, he was found guilty on three charges of rape and sexual assault, acquitted on one charge of sexual assault, and the jury could not reach a unanimous verdict on three other charges. His accusers were four women. Okay, a model, an actor, a massage therapist, and a documentary producer. Four other women testified as backup witnesses, describing early similar predations that escalated from business meetings in hotel rooms for requests for naked massages and brutal sexual assaults. <laughs> Many of the witnesses against Weinstein exhibited intense physiological distress on the stand. Wall underwent what criminal justice professor and rape trial scholar Gregory, Gregory Matosia calls a harrowing degradation ceremony, weathering cross-examinations that would never be inflicted on a man testifying that, says his business partner has embezzled from him. I do not believe you just say believe her, cautioned expert witness Barbara Zeva, forensic psychiatrist, who has interviewed thousands of sexual assault victims and perpetrators and testified 
invoke Weinstein trials about common rape myths and related issues. This is an allegation of a crime and it needs to be investigated, okay? Questioning any individual on the stand in any crime is appropriate, but there is a difference in the ways that people, characters are attacked in cases of sexual victimization. Their characters, their lifestyle, everything about them is called into question, everything. Ashley Mathau, a former American Ballet Theater dance dancer and a supporting witness took the oath with her hand shaking while a victim services escort sat behind her. She burst into tears because she was asked a single question. In a voice as whispery and breathless as a child, she said that Weinstein had pressured her into, into a hotel room and after his female aide conveniently disappeared, coerced her sexually in Puerto Rico 19 years ago when she was 22. Performing in Miramax's Dirty Dancing Havana Nights, defense attorneys ignoring the imbalance of power between a film's producer and a member of its dance troupe questioned why Mathau had even entered the hotel room if she was so afraid, implying that she must be terminally naive, lying or complicit. Undeterred, she returned later as a rebuttal witness. Defense attorney Mark Worksman called documentary filmmaker Jennifer Siebel, okay, Siebel, Siebel, Newsom, Governor Newsom's wife, okay, who holds an MBA from Stanford, just another bimbo. Typical, horrible. On cross-examination, he asked her to mimic the moan she's making in 2005 to try to bring what she said was a rape by Weinstein to a, to a close. She refused. Do you understand the paradox worksman challenge of trying to stop a rapist by faking an orgasm? Siebel Newsom later shot back, what you're doing today is exactly what he did to me. And so it went. Why did you smile on that photo afterward if you were so upset? Why did you go to that audition or accept those theater tickets? Why did you stay in that hotel room if you were so traumatized by that so-called rape? Which, by the way, we say never happened. Yeah, right. In closing arguments, defense attorney Alan Jackson contended that two of the four alleged attacks were fabrication and that the others constituted transactional sex willing engaged in by fame and fortune seekers. He called the women's testimony a pack of lies, ridiculous, a farce, and insulting to the jury. Okay, Prosecutor Marlee Martinez counted that Weinstein worked to keep his victims quiet by plying them with favors afterwards. And Ziv told the jury that rape victims really conform to a mythical stereotype of pure, empowered, outraged womanhood. 85% of rape women know their attacker, she said. Many feel ashamed, confused, or complicit. Few report immediately and most stay in contact with the abuser afterwards. It's the norm, she said. Thanks to California legal reforms, the courtroom is somewhat less hostile to rape victims than it was in past decades. Defense attorneys can no longer ask about their sexual history. Women who say they were subjected to a similar pattern 
of so-called prior bad acts by the defendant can testify as supporting witnesses, undercutting cutting the classic he said, she said narrative. The Los Angeles County District Attorney's Bureau of Victim Services has more, more than 80 advocates to help crime victims restore a sense of safety and autonomy by offering therapy referrals, help finding new housing or an escort for court appearances. <clears throat> but testifying in a rape trial, even though it focuses attention on an invisible epidemic that crosses all through cultural, racial, and class lines, can still be a ceremonial degradation. That's right. Many human needs collide in a courtroom. The community has an interest in holding rapists accountable. Women seek sexual safety and justice. A defendant has a right to an effective defense. And into this morass walks a woman set to testify before strangers about perhaps the most intimate, humiliating, and traumatizing things she has never experienced. Those who testified were heroic and are heroic. For many of the survivors that this gal, Katie, has spoken with over the decades, there can be something empowering about coming forward for the good of the collective, said Deborah Turkheim, Turkheimer, a former Manhattan assistant district attorney and author of Credible, Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers. This is something I'm going to have to read. It's brave, but it often comes at a great personal cost. Thank you, Katie Butler. Wow. It's so intense because it always seems to be the woman's fault. The accuser, the abuser gets away with it, but, but the accuser has to live with it for the rest of their lives the abuser and the accuser. It's a terrible thing. I, I'll ex give you an experience that I had in the 70s. You know, it was the wild 70s. And I was a bit of a wild child. I always knew what I was getting myself into. I'm not going to lie about that. But I went out with this guy who was, um, oh, it was a mafia nephew who died. All, all, I forget what his name was. He was part of Murder Incorporated, Balter or... I forget what the guy's name was, and, and I didn't even know who he was. I have to look that up, Mafia Incorporated. I want to, I'll look that up right now so I can tell you it's like, no, Murder Incorporated, Murder Inc. Lefty Buckalter. I think that was his name, Lefty or Lefty. Let's see, Lefty, Lefty or Lefty Buckalter, Buck. That's it. Lefty Buckhalter. Okay. Lefty Buckhalter was a, the head of Murder Incorporated. So that's Louis Lepke. Okay. So that's, he was his nephew and I didn't know who he was. I didn't know who Louis Lepke. I should know because my father's family was in Murder Inc., but we didn't talk about it. Part of the family was. He was the first mobster die in the electric chair. Okay. Lepke. He was the most brutal. The Bob's most brutal hit squad. Okay, very interesting. So that's who he was, Lefty. Anyway, Lefty, Lef Lefty, they called him Lefty. So I was dating a nephew. I didn't know who he was. And we went back to my apartment. I had moved back with my mother after my divorce. And he literally raped me. And uh, I allowed it to happen. I don't know. I was But he didn't rape me, you know, through the front. He raped me through the back. So my anus. 
So that was my first experience with that. And it was horrible, horrible. And I don't think I ever saw him again. I don't remember. I forget his name. They changed their name, the Buckalters. I know that because I remember they changed their name after that. And I don't even know where, where I met this guy. You know, my son, the gangster. There it is, right? So I don't even know this guy. But I remember the degradation, the stains on the sheets. It was horrible. So I've had this, you know. I've had this happen to me. I'm sure it's happened to a lot of us. And we feel like, what did we do to encourage this to happen? What did we say? Well, I can tell you one of the things that when I used to go to the discos and wherever, I used to wear these short shorts. I, you know, I was in my 20s. You know, I had developed late in life physically. You know, I was, uh, you know, I was like skinny mini and tiny. But I just wanted to show my body off after I had developed. So I always wore these short shorts to the disco or out in the street, um, which I would never do today. And I see a lot of people wearing outfits like that. And it just brings me back to that time. And that's what did it. I believe when he saw me wearing those short shorts and we met, I probably wore the short shorts on a date. I don't know. Or at the disco. I always, I always wore platform shoes. And short shorts, jean short shorts, okay? And I'm sure, I'm guessing that that's what happened that I can remember. And, uh, you know, one of, that was a real good lesson for me because after that, I never wore stuff like that again. You know, I never wore short shorts, you know, that song, who wears short shorts, never wore them again. And there's a reason for that. And um, that experience really taught me some really good lessons. And a lot of times, just because we wear, you know, some clothing that exposes ourselves, short skirt, high heels, does that mean that we're asking for it? I don't know. You could answer me that question when I start having guests in here. Um, I just feel like, for me, I, I didn't think about really how I dressed, how that would look to the outside world. It just felt so good for me to finally have a figure because I had waited so long. I never had a figure until my late teens, early 20s. And I just felt, oh, my God, I have a figure and I look gorgeous and people think I look gorgeous. And that's all I thought about myself. I thought, you know, I used to be called the bod, le bod, rather than my mind, my body. And years later, of course, when I went through, um, and I'm sober in AA, you all know that, 37 years. And I'm sober in Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous since, uh, let's say, 2000. So I'm sober 22 years in that program. And one of the things I did when I went into that program 22 years ago, I stopped dressing inappropriately. I wanted people to get to know me for my mind, my sense of humor, my funniness. And the first thing, you know, when I met somebody, I didn't want them to like stare at my boobs and look at me and like, you know, look there. The first thing that they saw me rather than look in my eyes and talk to me as a person. 
And that's one of the things that was suggested, like, you know, that I'm having people look at my figure rather than who I am. So I started covering up. And it was the, really the first time in my life that I started doing that. And people began to take me seriously, you know, covered my boobs, covered my hoo-ha, which I never really, covered my tushy, covered everything. And, you know, long skirts, um, I got rid of the low cut top so you could see the boobs. And I changed everything in that sense. And that really began to change me. So the image of myself wasn't necessarily about my body. It was more about who I am and who I was as a person. And who was I? I was a 53-year-old woman at the time in 2000. And it was time for me to change the image of myself and who I was and who I wanted the world to see me as. I wanted the world to see me as a smart, intelligent, I had a degree from Pratt, a Bachelor of Fine Arts, you know. And getting back to this Harvey Weinstein thing, you know, a lot of times with people in power in the movie industry, of course, I'm a 75-year-old woman now. And it's not necessarily the direction that I'm going in as an actor. In fact, I'm more of a personality. And so I don't have to, you know, go to the casting couch, so to speak. And back then, I'm sure if I wanted an acting job and I was so desperate and I had met Harvey Weinstein, I probably would have gone to his, you know, his hotel room. In fact, back in the day, I did go to some hotel rooms in Cleveland and in Los Angeles. You know, when people gave me acting jobs, yes, I did. I would meet them at a hotel, for sure. And they gave me acting jobs, voiceover jobs and acting jobs. So that was my reality. I mean, I was like, you know, this is what you have to do if you want to get the job. I And I think about it now, I'm reflecting because I remember all these things. It's like, and I felt bad about it afterwards. What am I doing? Why am I here? Why am I going here? You know, I was living with somebody in Cleveland and I flew to New York for a voiceover job. I met this producer and I flew to New York to meet him. I wanted the job, a voiceover job. So, um, and also like, so I, I got a, a voiceover job in New York. And even when he was here in California, my first uh, SAG job was from the guy that I had slept with in the hotel, you know, in New York. So he was here. I slept with him and got an acting job. You know, my first commercial, on-camera commercial was for uh, Pac Bell at the time. Cliff Robertson was the star and I was like an ancillary character. And I was just very grateful for that. So yes, I have done that back in the day, looking for jobs and willing to do most everything that anybody asked me to do to get that job. And it it's very degrading, you know? And um, I just couldn't rely upon my talent. Maybe I didn't think I was talented enough or I was talented enough, but I didn't think I was worthy. I thought this is what you do to get jobs, you know, and... Obviously, 
I did get the jobs, you know, so I mean, I wasn't a big, gigantic movie star, but I did work a lot, you know, from that was the beginning. I worked a lot as a voiceover actor in the 80s, you know, and that was what I did. So uh, I thought I had to achieve success through my sexuality, which is ridiculous, which I don't think, you know, is the way to do it. You know, I really don't. You know, I think that if we can't, as actors, as human beings, achieve our artistry through who we are as ourselves, then is it really worth it to uh, engage in situations like this? Maybe these women didn't know what was going to happen, you know, when they went into that room and he wanted a massage or whatever, and maybe they had no idea. I mean, you know, I, I knew what I was getting into. I have to be honest about that. You know, when I flew to New York for the producer, I knew it. I wasn't naive enough to think that that wasn't what was going on because it was. I'm not, you know, I wasn't born yesterday. Well, I was, but yesterday, a long, long time ago. So I just had to share this article because... A lot of times we're degraded, us women, and I'm sure men are as well, for latent sexuality, for favors that famous people want. You know, if we if we do this, if we give them blowjobs, they'll give us this acting part, or whatever it is, to admit things like that. It's difficult to admit it. You know, I have no shame. So I'll admit stuff like that, you know, on this platform, because this is my platform. This is my life through my eyes and the things I've done. Perhaps it's embarrassing to my family. I'm sure it would be. But that's my reality. You know, I'm not going to lie and say I didn't do these things because I did. And, uh, you know, I don't know what would have happened if a Harvey Weinstein asked me into his bedroom. I have no idea. You know, that's something I really can't say because I don't know. I really don't. But I have been molested at times in situations, you know, when I was in the lighting business and I wanted lighting jobs. Yes, I allowed them to molest me, touch or fondle my breasts or whatever, so that I could get the lighting job. You know, or, yeah, I'm not going to lie about that. I knew, you know, it was horrible. And it was disgusting for me, but I needed the work. I needed the money. You know, um, I had a lighting company. I wanted success in that. I wanted the money to take care of my son and myself. That's what I did. So if stuff like this ha happens to you, please, you know, don't be ashamed. Be who you are. You're, you're okay, you know, and talk about it with somebody. You know what? I reached out one time in the lighting business to my boss before at my company. This guy molested me. She said, oh, don't worry about that until we get the money from him, until he pays his bill. See, that's what I'm talking about. People will propagate this for profit for them. So I love you and God loves you. And if nobody told you they love you today, I love you because you're you. And thank you again, Katie Butler. I love to read stuff from the Times, from LA Times, and 
it leads me into my story of my life and what everything is about with me. And, you know, sometimes the shame of some of the things I've had to go through and how I've come back and recovered from it. So you take care. TikTok Bobby loves you. Bye-bye.